It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Actions. Uh, they are important, but we're going to need legislation for a lot of the things we're going to do. And the first order I'm going to be signing here is relates to uh, um, COVID, and uh, it's requiring, as I said all along, um, where, where I have authority, mandating masks be worn, social distancing be kept on federal property and interstate commerce, etc. So this is the first one I'm signing. And the second one I'm signing here is the uh, support for uh, underserved communities. Uh, and we're going to already, we've have, uh, going to make sure we have uh, some bedrock uh, equity, equality as it relates to how we treat people and health care and other things. Uh, and you can, we'll give you copies of these executive orders. And the third one I'm going to sign, and that's what I'm going to do while you're all here is uh, the commitment I made that we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord uh, as, of, uh, as of today. Mr. President, Mr. President, the president uh, wrote a very generous letter. I have, it's because it was private, I will uh, not talk about it until I talk to him, but uh, it was generous. That was President Joe Biden on Wednesday, uh, right after he swore in his oath of office, and he started signing executive orders, which we'll be talking a lot about because uh, the administration has an, a calendar of themed days, and they're all devoted to all of these uh, executive orders, economic relief, equity, climate, health care, immigration. So uh, it's going to be very interesting. We are Already he's uh, stopped, ordered the state. The cessation of the building of the wall. He's ordered a stopping of deportations. Uh, he is uh, he's going to rescind the ban on transgender service in the military. Uh, he has stopped the XL pipeline, which is important to energy and and actually lots of jobs in America and Canada. And he's uh, signed us back on to the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. And there's a lot more to say about that. But he's uh, he's going to be very busy. And of course, the people around him are very. Important. What they what they believe actually will be implemented. That's why he hired them, and that's why I want to talk just a second about the importance of uh, the character of the people that you hire. I want to kind of set the stage with an interaction that took place earlier this week by Nicole Wallace. Nicole was um, a staffer for George uh, W. Bush, and then later John McCain, and she uh, went to MSNBC, and she's been one of the most vitriolic haters of Donald Trump, but she was in those working with those two candidates. And then she's talking to Ben Rhodes, who is the former deputy national security advisor uh, for President Barack Obama. 
So they have an interesting exchange, and I want you to listen. Let's listen. Talk about the extraordinary damage that this culture of disinformation and echo chambers that repeat the lies have done and, and how this new team is, is poised to take that on. Well, look, it's the big issue in American politics that people will believe things that are just not true. And it's a challenge, as you said, people may not take this vaccine. You lead by example, and then you try to act through policy. And in terms of leading by example, you know, when you sit down to work on an inauguration speech, and I've had to, to work on two with, with President Obama, you know, what you choose to focus on sends a message about the kind of behavior you want to model as president. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Joe Biden went out of his way to address the fact that lies are essentially incompatible with democracy, that you cannot have democracy when huge swaths of the population are, are, are led to believe things that are just not true and led to hate one another instead of helping one another. So I think Joe Biden repeating that message, a White House that is going to start today, I think briefing probably very aggressively to show here are your public officials standing up and telling you the truth, telling you facts, bringing you the doctors, bringing you the experts to brief you on COVID. That's part of it. But then I think from a policy perspective, Nicole, there are big questions about the future of social media in this country, yeah. whether or not someone has to step in and regulate these platforms so that it's not left to the CEO of Twitter to make a decision to kick President Trump off a couple weeks before his term ends and after the Democrats have won back and forth government. But rather, can government work with these tech companies to determine how they can at least slow the spread of this poisonous disinformation? And then the last piece, Nicole, is one that you thought a lot about, I know, too, which is can the Republican Party finally stand up and, and tell their people the truth? And this is what Mitt Romney said so powerfully the night of January 6th, which is leadership is telling people the truth. Uh, and if we get enough Republicans who are willing to do that, I think the combination of what Joe Biden can do, what can be done through policy, what can be done with tech companies, uh, and hopefully what at least a somewhat more responsible Republican Party can do, can begin to drain the toxicity out of our democracy. So let's see. First, I have to talk about, now again, that's Ben Rhodes, the former Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speechwriting for President Barack Obama. Actually, Ben played a key role in Barack Obama's foreign policy, even though he was a novelist. And... Um, I'll give you an example. He was one of the key uh, thinkers, upper, that's official term, of uh, the Iran deal. Uh, the Iran deal was a disaster for Americans, and yet it was sold as, as wonderful. They're very safe, uh, not to worry, as we actually allowed them to start developing their nuclear weapons, uh, giving them access to uranium and other things. Thanks to Hillary Clinton, there's more to say about that. But then we also delivered them huge piles of cash in the middle of the night, uh, well, they were the number one, uh, you know, uh, exporter of terror in the globe. They were responsible for the murder of so many American and maiming of so many American soldiers. But Barack Obama was, uh, if he was nothing else, he was dedicated to building Iran up. And so Ben Rhodes kind of wrote the script of that whole story. And he said later, actually, when he left office, he laughed. He said, I couldn't believe we got away with that. That's what Ben Rhodes said. But now remember, Ben Rhodes uh, is really committed to the truth. He just said to you, people believe things that just aren't true. Well, I guess he ought to know because he wrote and scripted things that just weren't true. And he laughed because people believed it. They believed that the Iran deal was good for America. He couldn't believe they fell for that. That was Ben Rhodes. 
Uh, he also said lies aren't compatible with democracy. So, but what he's telling you is that uh, he said we have to stop the spread of disinformation. So he's not really maybe so concerned with truth as he is with his narrative, which is a story, a fairy tale, a very dark fairy tale of what's happening in the world, which is what the left is doing. We are living in a fantasy, a narrative that is absolutely constructed and false. This is what totalitarian leftist regimes have done since the beginning of time. They propagandize their people, shut them out from real information, and then they control them. And that's what Ben is talking about. We have to have people, you know, stop spreading disinformation. We got to get the Republicans to join in. It's like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's a great example. He he believes in speaking the truth. I could tell you stories about Mitt Romney, but I won't stop to do that. No, not really. Mitt uh, Mitt uh, is a, he loves to uh, tell. He loves to say things that aren't true, and he's very convincing. I think the American people finally figured that out. But um, nevertheless, Ben Rhodes thinks he's a champion. So that's Ben Rhodes who. Now, of course, works uh, in conjunction. He's probably, I, I, I have a feeling, I don't know this officially, that he's been on the transition team kind of helping pick out uh, Joe Biden's uh, national security team. And let me just add something. This just really occurred to me. You know, uh, Bob Gates was the national security advisor for Barack Obama. And when he left office, while Bar- Bar- Barack Obama was still in office, he wrote a book, and he said of John uh, of uh, of Joe Biden. He said he never he got everything wrong on foreign policy. He never got anything right, and now Joe Biden is you know our foreign policy leader. He is the one who will establish uh, what's true and what isn't, and he's appointing some very interesting people. I I want to mention one of them. It's a one of his senior advisors. You've probably heard her name before if you've you know, been listening to the news through the Obama era. She uh, is was a former senior advisor to Barack Obama, and she's a current now senior advisor to Joe Biden, and her name is Anita Dunn. Uh, Anita Dunn uh, got in big trouble when she was serving Obama because she gave a speech to a high school, and she said this, The third lesson and tip actually comes from two of my favorite political philosophers, Mao Zedong and Mother Teresa. Not often coupled with each other, but the two people I turn to most to basically deliver a simple point, which is you're going to make two choices. You're going to make choices. You're going to to challenge. You're going to say, why not? You're going to figure out how to do things that have never been done before. And she's saying that in reference to, we'll just say Mao Zedong right now, rather than Mother Teresa, because we'll talk about who he is, because I want you to be reminded, because Anita is absolutely the key strategist. She was the key strategist in Obama's presidential campaign, but she is now a key advisor for, uh, for Joe Biden. So who is Mao, and why is that so egregious? Don't people walk around with Mao t-shirts now, and is it kind of cute, a kind of, you know, interesting, kind of fun? Uh, Well, let's see. I'm going to read this to you from a Judicial Watch article. Mao's communist revolution is responsible for tens of millions of deaths and his disastrous plan to transform China into a communist wonderland by ordering the collectivization of the country's agriculture resulted in millions of Chinese starving to death. 
Uh, the Good Earth was a famous book written written during this time, and it's, a, it's still a, a real classic. And there's a movie about it. But this was as a result of Mao's, you know, new way trying something. Why not? Why not? He tried a new way, and he starved millions of his own people to death. Ironically, what he did was called the Great Leap Forward. You see, this is what the, the communists always do. Mao was a master at it. Call something a name that has no connection with what it really was. Great Leap Forward to, I guess, starve all those people. Uh, the communist leaders made owning private land illegal and emphasized iron and steel production, forcibly removing millions of agriculture worker agriculture workers from their land and deploying them to factories. It was the most humane example of Mao's contempt for human life, according to one historian. A few years later, after that catastrophe, Mao launched the bloody cultural revolution to destroy his enemies. Gangs known as the Red Guards beat up or murdered intellectuals considered to be enemies of the state. Teachers were humiliated by having their faces covered in ink, their bodies draped in bizarre clothes and dunce caps, some were forced to get down on all fours and bark like dogs. Others were beaten to death, all in the name of Maoism. In the meantime, Mao expanded China's large system of forced labor camps, which saw tens of millions of Chinese die of primitive living conditions and inhumane workdays. For a senior advisor to an American president to rank this ruthless dictator among her favorite political philosophers is downright disturbing. And I uh, couldn't agree more. It occurred to me immediately when I heard her name. Uh, that was very upsetting to me. And I remember during Barack Obama's years, you may or may not recall, that when they decorated the Christmas tree, they put an ornament with Mao Zedong's picture on it in the White House. So uh, what does it mean that Joe Biden has these kinds of people around him? Well, what you think it means is exactly what it means. And so we go forth soberly and with knowledge. Next, I want to I want to highlight something wonderful. This is a sad thing that happened this week, uh, but the story of Joe Scheidler's life is so encouraging. It's one of courage uh, in the midst of all kinds of adversity. And I want you to hear his story and honestly be inspired, encouraged, and ready to face whatever comes. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Coming next on C-SPAN's America and the Courts, a look at violence at abortion clinics. Last Wednesday, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments in the case of the National Organization for Women v. Scheidler. This case will decide whether a racketeering law covers violence at abortion clinics. Faye Clayton, who represents the National Organization for Women, or NOW, alleges that Joseph Scheidler and his group, Pro-Life Action League, engage in a conspiracy to shut down abortion clinics. The justices are expected to rule this spring whether Mr. Scheidler's group and others, such as Operation Rescue, may be sued under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. All right, so that was C-SPAN, and as you can tell, it didn't happen yesterday. That was probably uh, back in 1986, something like that. Uh, and you notice he mentioned the National Organization for Women. They were the powerhouse for so-called women's rights 
They were the radical leftist, liberal women that I went toe-to-toe with many times. Uh, They were a powerhouse at that time. Millions of women belonged to the National Organization for Women, and they brought charges against a man named Joe Scheidler, thus now versus Scheidler. Well, Joe Scheidler uh, was known as the the godfather of the pro-life movement, the godfather. He was also known as the Green Beret of the pro-life movement. Joe uh, had the most incredible past. He was a Benedictine monk. Uh, he uh, ended up leaving that, and we're going to talk about that a bit. He ended up marrying his wife, and they had several children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And in the process, uh, Joe uh, founded an organization called Pro-Life Action League. Now, for many of you, that will be something you're not familiar with. I'm a Chicago from Chicago, and they were based in Chicago, and they were just a powerhouse, and they have been nationally. Pro-Life Action League has produced so many videos and trained so many people outside of clinics. Uh, and Joe had written so many wonderful books about the pro-life movement. He, to- he wrote about his own life called Racketeer for Life in 2016. Uh, he was a history buff, and so he talked a lot about the connection between abortion and slavery. Really fascinating kinds of things. Joe was a brilliant guy. Uh, and he was um, just an incredible character, someone that you will never forget. Uh, and I have to say that he was a very dear friend of mine. Uh, Joe Scheidler died of pneumonia at the age of 93. That's uh, this past Monday while we were all st- scurrying about, uh, talking about the election and the inauguration. Joe passed into the next life. And uh, he was surrounded by his family, as I said, and his wife, seven kids, 26 grandchildren, uh, and one great-grandchild. He died on Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, which was really ironic, given that he often did talk about, at least he did to me, and I think he wrote a book about it, uh, about uh, how um, abortion was so much like slavery and the uh, disregard for human life. And he also, when he was younger, was a teacher and marched with Dr. King in Selma, Al- uh, Selma and Montgomery in uh, 1965. So Uh, He died uh, this past Monday, and I want you to know who he was because I'm telling you so much of the backbone of the pro-life movement that you have been the beneficiary of because what we have today, at least before uh, last Wednesday, what we had uh, leading up to President Trump's presidency was the most pro-life country we've ever had, the most pro-life policies, the most pro-life president and Joe Scheidler had a tremendous amount to do with what happened with public opinion, educating people, and now our champion has passed on. I've asked someone who also who knows him so well, has spent more time actually with Joe than I have, and spent so many years in the trenches with him. It's a fascinating story. He's been with me before, but I want to introduce to you Again, Tom Brecca. Tom is the founder and president of Thomas More Society, also the chief legal counsel. Tom, I think the last time we talked, you were working on those uh, churches in California trying to open up because of the COVID restrictions, right? Yes, Sandy, indeed. <clears throat> Another uh, struggle. Too many struggles, but that's, yep. what, uh, that's what it takes. Before we go into the intersection of you with, with Joe uh, professionally, what what I've talked, I just gave a thumbnail sketch of his biography. What else do you think people should know about Joe? Well, I don't know that it's his biography, but it's his profile as a human being, Sandy. I just look back on all these years with Joe as an indomitable figure. He just uh, 
was unshakable in his faith, in his faith in in God and and in the sanctity of of human life. And no matter how bad things got, and and indeed the adversity was difficult and challenging uh, during the lawsuit uh, that you talked about lasted, uh, my goodness, all of, what, 26 years, 28 years. Um, It went on and on, up to the Supreme Court, back down, up again, back down, up again, a third time. All through this time, when things were going badly for Joe, uh, you know, ultimately, we prevailed, uh, Joe prevailed, but there were some bad times, and people would tell him to settle, give up, don't lose your house. He put his house up in in Hock uh, to secure the appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, give up. Don't don't lose your house. Uh, he was unshakable. There was never any any doubt. We were going to fight all the way, and win or lose. Well, he was rewarded. We won. Yeah, and we're going to go back to that because I do want to talk through that. Uh, there's a whole book about that. And that is uh, a case, of course, that has affected, you know, American history. And I, I do want to get to that, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about the personal uh, with you. I, look, Joe was a, a a very tall, towering man, and when he would when he would go out to these pro life rallies, you know, he wore a black hat, like a, a large brimmed hat, not a cowboy hat, but I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, very and a long black trench coat because it was a trench. I mean, overcoat, pretty overcoat, like a cashmere, and uh, that was kind of his hallmark. Uh, and he was fearless, and he was indomitable, and yet he had a great sense of humor. Tom, he wasn't like it wasn't onerous to be around him. He he had a great sense of humor. We laughed so much, and I'm sure you did too. Oh heavens, <clears throat> a lot of irony. Uh, he played irony to the. Ultimate, you know, the whole idea that he was a racketeer uh, was uh, so ironic. Uh, who are racketeers? Those are people who uh, kill uh, other human beings for money. <laughs> and of course, that's precisely what Joel was fighting against. And, and uh, so he would uh, uh, sometimes uh, talk. He would carry a violin case and say, here I am with <laughs> racketeer. Uh, you know, and of course, he was anything but. He was the opposite. You know, I want to tell you a funny story. This is something I probably, um, this is really personal. I probably should explain it as best I can. But when I was on the radio in Chicago, I was on there many years. So this is one of the iterations. Uh, Joe was often, you know, my guest. And we were in the studio alone. Uh, of course, we had the engineers on the other side of the glass. But I mean, the door was shut. There wasn't anybody in the in that closed off studio with us. But there are windows all around. And uh, I was uh, in the middle of a controversy with another host who was uh, quite the, well, quite the difficult other host. And he, he honestly, he'd do things like, uh, he would, like, cancel my guests because he thought that he should have those guests. He didn't like my <laughs> perfume. I mean, this is honestly what I would, but, and at the time, I, I, I'm older now. I think I would have agreed it differently, but at the time, I was a single mom with two kids, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. my job meant uh, it was important to me. And I was, he was going to the station manager and twisting everything. And I said to Joe, as I'm sitting across the table from him, I said, Joe, I think I may get fired when I get off the air here. I think I might get fired. And he said, Sandy, 
that happened to me once. I was up in Boston, and he said we. I was with the radio host, and he he was talking. I forgot the details, but he did something the station manager didn't like. He said, and so we just locked the door. We just kept talking and finished the show. <laughs> and okay. so it it made well, me laugh. I, he made I me laugh. He made me yes, laugh because I was a nervous wreck. I was like sick at my stomach, and he's making me laugh and also giving me perspective. Like, uh, I, I learned from Joe, I always said to him, some of my best friends uh, are, are, have been convicted of some crime or suspected or arrested or have charges against them. It really became that. It's actually getting even more that way. There's more really fine people who are uh, paying a very deep penalty in the legal system. And Joe was one of my first friends who went through that. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit, before we get into the main intersection again with you. I want to talk a little bit about his past, Tom, because I'm sure I'm sure with as many hours as you guys spent together, you shared some of his past. I I wonder what perspective you can give on his uh, his background. What brought him to uh, be a pro-life activist? Um do you know anything about that? Well, this was of course before I got to know Joe back in 1973 when the Roe versus Wade the decision uh, came down, uh, apparently, it just shook Joe to his foundations. He said he had a sleepless night. Uh, he just couldn't understand how, you know, suddenly this wonderful democracy of ours, uh, the Declaration of Independence talks about an inalienable uh, rights endowed by the Creator, and right up front there is the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet here we were going to give uh, uh, some human beings the right to uh, end the lives of others with impunity. And uh, Glenn called that a constitutional right. Well, he just couldn't handle that at all. So he had to do something about it. And his background, Sandy, was public relations and communications. And so he took his gifts, which were ample gifts, uh, and put them uh, full throttle to use uh, in uh, starting up and revving up uh, what became our national pro-life movement. And, uh, you know, his whole purpose was to get people not only to believe in the sanctity of life, but to act on that belief, to uh, turn uh, true believers, Christians, into activists for life. And, boy, oh, boy, he, he really revved up the national movement. He inspired a evangelical pastor in Binghamton, New York, named Randall Terry to start uh, Operation Rescue. Uh, I remember the story uh, that Randy was uh, prayerful against abortion and uh, but hesitant to go down to the clinic. And Joe said, go right there, stand right in front of the clinic and advocate for life and tell those who are headed for uh, the clinic that uh, this this is not something they should do. Uh, this is wrong. And my goodness, so that was the story of his whole life. Sandy was activism, yes. and uh, he kept it up till till the day he died. And I guess uh, I would say rooted in his real strong sense of righteousness. I remember he was a uh, I think he was a graduate of Notre Dame, or his kids went there. He had his affections were really with Notre Dame, and when they started going south on the pro life issue, he was heartbroken. He was heartbroken, and he fought them. I mean, they went down and did a demonstration. Uh, at the time, I mean, yes. that's been, you know, so many things have happened in these many decades. But 
The other thing I remember that you, I think you know this, but Tom, but if you don't, you should know this. Joe was telling me about his time as a Benedictine monk. Very, of course, mm-hmm. serious Catholic, that goes without saying, based on what we're talking about here. Uh, but uh, he was going to go, uh, he was going to be a priest, and he was in this monastery, and they lived out, like in the country, uh, that living the monastic life. And he said a couple of things. He said, you know, he said, we were supposed to take a vow of poverty. He said, but I always kept a nickel in my cloak. I just couldn't quite. I just couldn't quite give up <laughs> everything. <laughs> and then well, he, he said, yes. Well, and then he said, this is the other one. He said, and then he said, we used to go to town, you know, to get supplies. And he said, we, we went to town and I saw some girls walking across the street. And I realized, I can't be a monk. <laughs> I can't take those <laughs> vows. I cannot be a priest. And so that's why he, he never did take the vows. He didn't break the vows. He never took them. But that's what he was so serious about his faith. He wanted to do that. Uh, but he recognized that uh, he was not wired for that. And, of course, then he met mm-hmm. Anne, who uh, was his beautiful little blonde, cute wife, uh, who was his great companion for a lifetime. Don't you think, Tom? Well, Anne was certainly a fireplug herself and a, a dynamo, and the two of them, I haven't. And, and uh, you know, it was Anne that organized with Joe that trip to Selma. Uh, Anne was his student when he taught at a, a college called Mundelein College in Chicago. It's now a part of Loyola University. And, uh, you know, Anne became our chairman of the board in founding our Thomas More Society and uh, how did it start, Sandy? Well, we, uh, I was a business lawyer when I was introduced. Oh no, no, no! Don't you know what, Tom? I'm going to oh. have you. I'm going to stop you because I want that okay. to be our whole next segment. Let's just tease because this is such a great story, and I want you to be able to relax and tell it. We, you, and I've talked about it a little bit prior to this on the air, but people won't remember that. And I want to say one more time that uh, Joe passed from this life last Monday on Martin Luther King's birthday. I have to say, Tom, that uh, in many ways, uh, because I'm confident about where Joe is, he's in he- he's in heaven. I knew where he stood with God. He was steadfast. His famous his favorite song was "Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory of the Coming of the Lord." We used to sing that. Oh, that's these, right. uh, yeah, yeah. So I know where he is. I'm not worried about him. Um, and in way in many ways, I'm grateful that he did not live to see the unraveling that's going to be taking place. My guest is uh, Tom Brecka founder and chief legal counsel of Thomas More Society. When you hear how Tom and Joe intersected and how they, uh, Tom's life was changed by his intersection with Joe, and you have to hear that story, so please stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Now Mr. Scheidler has been heard. I am Scheidler, Joseph Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League from Chicago. 
If it should happen that the case goes against us, then any group that espouses cause is in danger of being charged with RICO. I believe that our attorneys did very, very well. Professor Blakey was instrumental in writing RICO back in the 19, late 1960s. He knows the case well. He argued well before the court. And my surmisal is that he impressed the court with the fact that there must be financial gain before a person can be charged with racketeering. Uh, we make no profit in our work except to save lives. We make a profit of, of being a guardian of the unborn and of women who are coerced, in, coerced into abortion. We believe that the racketeering charges uh, that were, were ruled against in the lower courts, that that decision will be maintained. That the lower court ruling by Judge Holderman in the Seventh Circuit and by the appellate court will be upheld by this court. Why can't there be financial loss? Because you're the, uh, the person causing the loss is supposed to obtain what was lost. That's the idea of RICO, that there is an enterprise in which money or goods are taken from one and go into the pocket of the other. That's the whole idea of racketeering. Racketeers are rich people. If we're racketeers, we're some of the poorest racketeers in the country. But what about the taking of fetuses from these abortion clinics? The fetuses that were taken from the clinics were in no way a profitable venture. We actually used our funds in order to bury these babies. We took the fetuses, the unborn babies, because we think human beings are supposed to be buried and not thrown in the garbage. And these unborn children were slated to be thrown in landfill. And we saved them from that. We buried over 5,000 babies. That's what you do with human beings. You don't throw grandma out in the garbage Monday morning for a pickup. You bury her because the body is a sacred temple. That was the voice of Joe Scheidler. Boy, that takes me back in time and actually makes me sad. Uh, the loss of Joe Scheidler, who died last Monday, the founder of the Pro-Life Action League and the godfather, uh, or the, uh, you know, depending on how you look at the, the Green Berets, both of those things of the pro-life movement, both of those things were, he was called when he was still alive. And uh, you can hear the passion with, with which he speaks and why he was so powerful. Well, Tom Brecka is my guest today, and he is the founder of Thomas More Society, the chief legal counsel. And, Tom, you were uh, a young law attorney when you met Joe or heard about Joe, right? Well, I was a middle-aged attorney, uh, but by comparison, <laughs> yes, I was young. <laughs> Many Excuse years ago, me. 1980, <laughs> 1986, ancient history. Okay, and you weren't particularly interested in the life issue, were you? Well, I was too busy uh, as a young father of a growing family and a business lawyer. And I, you know, frankly, I look back and I probably spent too many of my waking hours uh, working on my cases. And one of them was an antitrust case that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's because of that uh, people, uh, a mutual, actually, Joe's brother-in-law, uh, told me about uh, this fellow had been sued under the antitrust laws in Wilmington, Delaware, and that's when I met Joe, and I uh, was quite surprised to find out he was uh, uh, not a, uh, a big businessman engaged in some kind of wrongful competition. <laughs> he was very uh, uh, modest, uh, but uh, deeply committed Christian, fighting for the lives of unborn babies. Yeah, so uh, so you I yeah I you got caught in the hook of Joe Scheidler. So did I, because I I actually think that that thing that he was responding to that whole business of burying uh, fe- 
you know, unborn babies that have been aborted. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe that's the first interview I did with him because I remember them describing finding those babies in the in those trash bins in the back of that abortion clinic. I, it hurts me even now to talk about it. Okay, so so Tom, uh, as you talked to Joe, I bet he kind of activated you, didn't he? I'm guessing. Well, it was a huge case, and uh, it was eventually transferred from Delaware to Chicago. <clears throat> and let me tell you, it just came to dominate my professional life, uh, Sandy. And, uh, it was a, a, a very tough battle. Uh, I, it shouldn't have been. Uh, I think the clip you played of Joe, you know, they added racketeering charges. But the whole idea that uh, if there was competition here, it was in the marketplace of ideas not uh, in a commercial market, so the antitrust laws had no business in this. And racketeering, Joe said it better than I could. Uh, racketeers are people who uh, make money, and uh, there's there's no money in protest. Uh, there are great rewards, but uh, they call it extortion, uh, you know, blocking access to a clinic or even urging women not to patronize an abortion provider. <clears throat> that takes money. It costs money to the clinic, yes, but it's not going into the pocket of the protester. Uh, so, <clears throat> and yet, this case went on 28 years. <laughs> it, it, it just, uh, there was more at work here than the merits of the law. There were spiritual uh, pressures uh, going back and forth in many directions. And what a challenge it was. And yeah. what memories. Goodness. Tom. Tom, let me let me interject something. Again, we're talking about now versus Scheidler. It started in 1986 and ended in 2006 in the Supreme Court, and it had been to the Supreme Court once or twice before that. But now was the National Organization for Women, and we are familiar now, Tom, with all this horrible vitriolic uh, accusations and lies we hear on television. But what people may not realize is we have a greater volume of them. Uh, but this this is no different than what we were hearing in 1986. So I want to give people an idea of this. Faye Clayton was uh, the uh, opposing attorney. Uh, she's the one that was representing the National Organization for Women. And I want people to just hear for a second what she sounded like and what she said about this case. This is clip three. I'm Faye Clayton, and I just argued the case for now and the clinics that have been besieged by these terrorists for the past decade and more. And I think the Supreme Court understands, I, I certainly hope they do, that what we are seeking to remedy here has nothing to do with free speech. The people who engage in free speech about abortion or any other topic have an absolute right in this wonderful country of ours to engage in that. But when they cross the line from speech to mob violence, which is exactly what Plan has done, Plan's entire reason for being is to organize violent mobs across the country and, and obtain by force what they have been unable to obtain by persuasion. They have they tried originally to compete in the marketplace for ideas with people who approve of the a woman's right to choose and when they felt they had lost that battle they said they would not limit themselves to protected speech. They would use any and all means necessary including the most violent the most horrendous tactics imaginable and I just hope I, I think the Supreme Court is sensitive to the fact that there are no First Amendment issues here at all. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be here if Plan and its constituents were praying or picketing or leafleting or lobbying the legislature. 
We're here because they crossed the line and tried to do by force what they couldn't accomplish by lawful ways. All right, so wait a second. That's Faye Clayton, and when she says plan, she's talking about pro-life Action League. That's Joe's organization. She said there are terrorists. They create violent mobs. Uh, they try to do by force what they can't do by ideas. They use violent tactics. Was any of that true, Tom? Well, it was utter uh, fiction. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, it can't be justified, uh, in, in my opinion, a strong opinion, uh, as hyperbole or exaggeration. It was an outright lie, and and yet. Uh, you know, the major media, we've learned much about the major media in the last four years, but even back then, uh, this uh, was propagated uh, an utter and complete falsehood. Uh, what Joe uh, uh, unleashed was, uh, uh, you know, a realization on the part of people, uh, pro-life activists, that indeed this was a killing of human beings that was done on a uh, a mass production basis. Uh, think of all the hundreds and thousands and millions of infants whose lives have been taken uh, under this uh, abortion at will, abortion on demand regime we've had. And, uh, you know, he inspired people to go to the clinics and uh, to treat this as, as what it was a deliberate, uh, unjustified killing uh, by human beings, by other human beings. This is wrong. Well, that kind of rhetoric, uh, the other side couldn't stand because it was truth. And they responded by hurling the violent uh, charge back at Joe and the pro-lifers whom he led. And it was utter and complete falsehood, and the courts ultimately so found. Tom, uh, you mentioned this. We prevailed uh, under the First Amendment. It was indeed free speech. I know. I, I just, it's unbelievable. And you said earlier that Joe would just not quit. He was not. He would not let them charge him as long as he had any breath in his body, and you were willing to represent him. He was not going to let this case stand, and so he kept fighting. But let's make it clear what was at stake, because I'll tell you something I remember. I was in a press conference in Chicago. I think I was sitting on the floor, actually, right in front of Patricia Ireland, who was the president of the National Organization for Women, and I heard her say, we're going to take their cars. We're going to take their homes. And I don't know if she said destroy their lives, but I know she said take their cars, take their homes. And that really, really was at stake, wasn't it, uh, Tom? They really did try to do that. Well, indeed. Uh, you know, there was a long trial, uh, Sandy, and what, uh, my goodness, 1998. Uh, it went on for two months and continued uh for another couple months after that, on a, a, a non-jury hearing, and the judgment came down. The legal instructions to the jury were so flawed, the jury had no chance but to hold against Joe and the co-defendant Operation Rescue, and uh, it was a quarter-million-dollar judgment. And again, people told uh, Joe and Ann, his wife, to settle. Give up. Don't lose your house. Well, they had raised their their kids, a big family in that house. Uh, they owned it free and clear by then. They bought it back in the 1960s. And uh, they put it up in hock uh, <laughs> security for the appeal. So, yes, their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, just as the founders of the Declaration of Independence were, were put at risk. And, uh, my goodness, uh, they held fast through it all. And... Uh, 
God bless him in memory of him, and God bless Anne, his wife, his widow now, uh, for doing that. And God bless the work of Pro-Life Action League, and uh, I will I will never uh, forget Joe as long as I live. Uh, I will miss him. Uh, just such a great friendship. I, he just was so interesting. I could talk to him for hours because, because, Tom, he knew about so many things. It wasn't just, you know, he did, was not just focused on abortion. He was well-read. He mm-hmm. understood. He was just a really brilliant great, man. Great respecter of history and raconteur. He was fun to talk to for hours on end. Always had something to say, and it was something worth listening to, Sandy. My goodness. We'll miss yeah. him terribly. Yes, absolutely. I I wonder, uh, just before you and I say goodbye, kind of give us an idea of, uh, I I alluded to it, but the difference between uh, the abortion laws back when Joe was beginning to fight, well, I guess maybe in the 80s, I would say from the 80s, uh, to, to right now. Give us the contrast. Well, back then, Sandy, you know, it was deemed... Uh by many people in the secular world, uh, to be almost a secular sacrilege uh, uh, to question a constitutional right, just because the Supreme Court reached a decision, uh, you know, it was felt that you should uh, uh, pay respects to it. And uh, to how do you attack a constitutional right? Well, Joe made the point that the Supreme Court has made mistakes in American history, and it can change its mind. It changed its ruling, and that it's uh, very much based on political consensus. And he tried to get people to change their views and then speak them out in a, a strong and powerful way, and that's what people did. And so, you know, the abortion liberty from Roe v. Wade has now been curbed to yes. some extent, to yes. a great extent. And that's Absolutely. going to show. Absolutely. We're still trying to protect life uh, ultimately, yeah. and I think we're. His inspiration is that we're going to keep uh, working in that direction. Yeah, what a great example, and especially right now, where we're concerned about all what's happening in the country. Joe Scheidler is really the standard of fighting and sacrificing. Pro-Life Action League, his book is called Racketeer for Life. Uh, Tom Brecka, Thomas More Society. Tom, thank you. God bless you and keep you. And uh, we'll hopefully, God willing, talk to you again soon. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. <laughs>